day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Welcome to the show, and I'm very happy you've joined us. We're in the middle of WDET Spring Fundraiser, and even though the world seems spun on its head right now, we want you to know that we are here, we are staying, we will be here, and we are not going anywhere. We will be here each day with vital information and discussion for you. Always, but especially right now, we need your support, if you can give it for that work. We need it to keep Detroit Today on the air. We need it to keep WDET growing strong. Right now, we need you as much as you need us. Each day, we get more information about COVID-19 and how its spread is ravaging the human population on this planet. And each day, we are coming to a new realization about how it is and will be changing our lives, what it's going to require of us, what it's going to take from us, and what the world will be like when we finally lift all the restrictions and go back at long last to some sense of normalcy. This has all happened so fast and so furiously, and sometimes I'm finding it really difficult to think about the possibility that we're just at the dawn of this pandemic, that we're just beginning to learn what it's going to do to us, to people we know, maybe to people we love. And so at the top of the show today, I said good day to you, rather than my customary hello or hey, Because right now, every day that we can gather, every day that we can greet one another in any form is indeed a good day. We've got a great show planned for today, and we're going to get started in just a few. But first, I want to spend just a little time talking about what I think we're doing here during this show and why it's important. I got a note from someone last week who said he listens to the show each day during work. But at the end of last week, he lost his job, a layoff related to the coronavirus pandemic. He told me he wants to keep listening, though, in part as a way to retain connection, the connection we initiate and foster each day right here on this program. That means something really extraordinary to me as host of this show. It's not just touching, it's reinforcing And it is especially reinforcing right now. These are not easy times to produce or maintain a show like Detroit Today. As all of you are experiencing in your lives, those of us who put this show together every day are in the middle of adapting to disruption and changes that are frightening in some cases and certainly are asking things of us that weren't asked before. But we're here. We're not going anywhere. And the reason is the listeners. Listeners like the one who lost his job last week and listeners like all of you. We convene this daily discussion because for so many of us, it's the connection we have. And maybe right now, one of the few we can still access and enjoy. It's part of what makes us feel human right now. And maybe for this hour, Like life is moving forward, not suspended by the strictures and disappointments of the response to this pandemic. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing. And that's what we pledge to continue throughout this era, whatever it brings, however long it lasts. 
And together, we are going to share this space, this connection, and push through to the other side. Again, if you can, lend your support to that effort. Go to WDET.org or call 800-939-959-9338, and you can give your support to WDET and to Detroit Today. Up first today, progress on a massive coronavirus relief package has come to a screeching halt. Democrats blocked the legislation from moving forward yesterday during procedural votes, saying that the package puts corporations over regular people. One especially controversial part of the package would send the spiraling airline industry a $50 billion bailout. President Trump says the country would be in trouble if airlines had to declare bankruptcy after bleeding money because of coronavirus. But critics say the airlines have gouged customers and used that money irresponsibly for years. And that the bailout disproportionately benefits corporate executives over the vast majority of airline employees. That's where we want to begin the conversation today. And joining us to talk about this package and the part of it that has to do with airlines is David Shepardson. He covers aviation, autos, and the business of transportation for Reuters. David Shepardson, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Steve. Thanks. So let's talk about the status of this proposed bailout. Where are we right now with airlines and what they might get out of the federal government? So at this point, the bill that the Republicans introduced last night, which is still under negotiation as we speak, the airlines would get uh, up to $50 billion in government loans. They would not get any grants. That's been a big sticking point. The airlines have wanted cash grants to pay for part of the salaries of their employees, and they made this last-ditch uh, offer on, on Saturday saying, if you give us $29 billion, $25 billion in cash or the passenger airlines and $4 billion for cargo carriers, then we won't lay anybody off through August 31st. But their argument is this is an unprecedented fall-off in demand. I mean, airlines like United are cutting you know, almost almost all the international flights, and 90% of their international flights in April or 50% of domestic flights. So these carriers are really you know, in unprecedented areas. But as you point out, at the top, there's a lot of anger toward the airlines uh, either for – you know, all the excessive fees they've charged for bags or changing tickets. And, and, and I, in this environment, Congress is very worried about about being portrayed as being too too friendly to the, to the corporations and, and to the airlines and not to the employees. So you've seen a lot of aviation unions say we need more protections for employees, including if any of these airlines filed for bankruptcy, would they be able to discharge their collective bargaining agreements as they can currently? So... The Democrats are right now trying to add more uh, pr- protections for workers in this agreement, and also sort of broader changes about this bigger $500 billion fund to, that will provide loans, you know, $50 billion for airlines and $450 billion for other, for other industries. And, and that's really a key question here is how much, how much will the administration be able to control this fund? And, and talk about what airlines have been up to for the last – decade. I've read a number of pieces that talk about their corporate behavior, the way that they have taken some of the money that they've been making over the last 10 years, as everybody who came out of the recession has been doing a a little better corporate-wise, and and their bottom lines have been fatter. Some, Some critics are saying what they did with those profits is 
part of the reason that they oppose bailouts now. Tell us, tell us what that is about. No, and that part is absolutely true. You can certainly argue about you know how much they should or should not have used, but they spent tens of billions of dollars collectively buying back their own stock. I mean, just in the case of American Airlines, the largest carrier, between 2014 and 2020, they spent more than $15 billion buying back their own stock. And, and, and you do hear this argument over and over again that the airline should have kept more cash on their balance sheet to prepare for you know, a more significant downturn. Now, obviously, this is a a once in a you, know, you hope once in a lifetime event, but still, that there's a lot of anger out there between the buybacks and the dividends and using all that cash uh, rather than sort of to ensure the long term solvency of the business. I mean, there was a memorable quote from American Airlines CEO Doug Parker back in 2017 when he said, I don't think we're ever going to lose money again. Basically, it was no matter what the economic circumstances were, the airlines were all. You know, always going to be profitable, in part because after 9/11 there were a lot of bankruptcies. The contracts were restructured, so they were the airlines became far more profitable, even at lower traffic levels. I mean, not not of this cataclysmic decline. But no, I, I think the question is going to be: well, What will the airlines have to do? Will they? There are, there have been some calls that maybe they should have to adopt some more consumer-friendly protections. You know, reduce some of the fees. The airlines have been resistant to that, uh, and so it's, it really is up to Congress now. Will they will they demand either more on the labor side or more on the consumer side as part of this uh, fifty billion dollar loan package? Hmm. So let's talk about what would happen to the airlines if they didn't get help. I also read a piece that said rather than declaring bankruptcy, it would maybe just require them to renegotiate the terms of the debt that they have, that because they did so well over the last decade, they really aren't in as precarious a situation as they might be portraying. What what would the chances be that the airlines that we all know and recognize would, would have to go away, perhaps, if, uh, if we didn't make sure that uh, Congress gives them this bailout? Well, I guess the, the key question there is how long is this crisis going to last? I do think there is a little bit of a parallel here between you know, 2008 with the auto companies when they were asking for a bailout. There was a, there was a question then about how much cash did the, did the auto companies have? How long could they actually survive? And, and I think that is definitely an open question here. We, don't, we know several airlines this week have borrowed more money uh, and, but, and to try to you know, have more cash on hand, but we don't. We, we don't yet have a, uh, to your question, a precise sense of what is the moment where the airlines run out of money. You know, there are some analysts who think it could happen in June or July. Uh, but look, I think I, I do think long term something is going to have to be done because it's, it's going to be harder for the, company, the airlines to raise money. And if, it's, if the crisis goes on, you know, for for four to five six months. You know, you could see airlines go into business. Certainly, the first step would be to try to to renegotiate the terms of their of their debt. Potentially, there could be mergers and so on. But there are some carriers that are in, are more in more precarious state than others. Others have have more cash on hand. And again, the broader question is: When will travel demand come back? Will, you know, will people just snap back to traveling the way they did once once the immediate crisis? ends, or is this going to result in a longer-term shift? 
some of the airlines think it could be two to three years before people's travel habits return to to where they are. So I, I think you know there there is a sense that some of the airlines would not survive depending how long it went, but but there certainly would be other options, albeit painful, for some of the comp- the airlines, uh, especially the when in a shorter period. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is David Shepherdson. He covers aviation, autos, and the business of transportation for Reuters. We're talking about the proposed bailouts for airlines that are part of the massive coronavirus relief packages that are trying to move through Congress right now. Uh, give us a call and tell us, do you think Congress should give the airline industry a bailout so that they avoid going bankrupt? Are you worried about what would happen if we let the airlines go? Or do you think they should face these kinds of consequences for bad financial decisions over the last few years? Or do you think that they're just part of the carnage that we are seeing across the economy for all kinds of businesses and all kinds of types of industries and that they ought to fare for themselves just the way everybody else is. In a little bit, we are going to talk a little more about another part of this package, the income package, the idea of distributing some money to Americans to help them get through this pandemic and all of the economic slowdown that it's causing. We're going to want to hear from you during that segment as well. What do you think about this idea of the bailouts in general and specifically uh, bailouts to individuals, which brings us into the discussion of this idea of universal basic income, which was floated during the Democratic presidential primaries this year and is something that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, But right now we want to hear from you about the airlines in particular. What do you think should happen with uh, American and United and, uh, of course, Delta, which is uh, our major airline here in in Detroit? Uh, They're all in a little trouble because of the marked decrease in travel uh, should they get bailouts from the federal government? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, what about the idea of nationalizing air travel in this country, David. In, in, in other countries, in Europe in particular, in Asia, there are national airlines that rely on a good amount of federal subsidy, and maybe that inures them from some of the, the market sort of volatility uh, in that industry. Is that something that anyone is, is talking or thinking about? You know, at this point, I don't think so. Only because the airlines are really focused on you know trying to get this this package through through Congress. I mean, these are companies, as you pointed out, are have been very profitable and, and make a lot of money, and they've been able to pay out a lot of money and in dividends and buybacks. And look, I I do think that if if this crisis is relatively short lived, and you know, three to six months, you know, nine months. It will be very, very painful, but the airlines or the industry will survive as a whole. But that won't. That doesn't mean there won't be tons of, of people that are also hurt. Uh, remember, I mean, kind of like autos a little bit. There are so many ancillary jobs. It's, of course, it's not just the you know people who work directly for the airline, right? It's the people who you know work as the 
cleaners or security officers, the airports or the customer service agents, the gate agents. I mean, there are so many people that work in the the aviation uh, you know, ecosystem, not to mention all the people who build the airplanes and the 17,000 suppliers for, for Boeing and, and for Airbus that builds planes here, too. So there's a, you know, like autos, because it has such a big chunk of the economy, there's such a big incentive for the government to ensure that the sector doesn't fall apart and the fact that people need to get around, be able to go to where they are. But but I do think the industry that emerges from this could be could be much smaller. It could be different. It could be, have fewer flights because it's been so profitable. These air, the airlines have added, you know, have spent billions of dollars on, you know, redoing facilities and adding new you know, lounges for, you know, frequent flyers. Uh, so I think that sort of those high-flying days, you know, spending days and adding more routes you know, are, are going to be gone for a while, and the airlines are going to have to focus on, you know, you know, the, the profitable routes. And, and the other question is, will all the low-cost carriers survive, right? Some of those carriers are a lot closer to the edge, potentially. And we certainly could see some mergers, or, or maybe not all the, the littler carriers to be able to survive this, because they just don't have as much liquidity as the bigger guys do. Again, 313-577-1019. That's 313 1019. Uh, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Scott in Milford. Scott, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen. Thanks hey. for taking my call. Sure. Um, I think for me, and, and I'm, I'm a pretty conservative person, but um, I think a lot of people don't remember that right before 9-11 happened, there was tons of talk about a passenger bill of rights um, for airlines, if you remember, there were mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different incidents where um, people were being left on tarmacs for many, many hours at a time. And that's happened since, too. But um, I think, in my opinion, is before they should get any money or attached to that money should be some sort of passenger bill of rights for us. Um, I think that's only fair. They've proven, you know, in the many years since 9-11 that uh, profits are more important than than passengers, and we need something to, you know, mitigate that or take that power away from them. You know, minimum seat distance, um, hmm. uh, you know, baggage fees, so on and so forth. Sure, so uh, that's, Scott. That's what I think, Scott. I really appreciate you bringing that up because that's something I <clears throat> kind of forgot that w- was something that was discussed a lot. After after nine eleven and is is something that I hear a lot of people express frustration about. Not necessarily the passenger bill of rights, but some of the issues that you bring up that would maybe be part of that. Uh, this issue of of baggage fees and and the other inconveniences that we have with with air travel. David Shepherdson, is there any discussion in Congress about extracting more for consumers out of the airlines if they were to get this help? from the federal government? There absolutely is. There have been a number of, of senators uh, who have called for protections. And, and you know, what's interesting is I, I think back to, so in September of 2018, so basically a year and a half ago, there was a, a debate to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration. Every four or five years, various federal agencies get reauthorized, and that's a time when Congress debates reforms. And one of these reforms that have been added 
by the Senate was to require airlines to only charge reasonable and proportional baggage and change fees, meaning the airline would have to explain how how that $100 or $50, whatever fee was, did it have an actual relationship to the cost the airline was incurring, not you know, not just a, a way for the airline to make to make money. Well, well, the CEOs all of the airlines <laughs> furiously lobbied against it. You know, they you know called members and they really really pushed. At the end of the day, that was dropped from the bill, as well as uh, you know sort of tougher provisions to require a minimum you know minimum legroom and width of seats. So they they did. Congress did require the FAA to do a study, to basically, and which is still ongoing, to determine whether seats should, you know, what should the minimum be. But Congress didn't set it itself, and, and this all came. Remember, it seems like a million years ago now, but remember, remember a few years ago when the doctor was dragged off a plane uh, at, at O'Hare after they refused to give the seat to make room for a crew member, and it's basically just sparked this whole conversation about airlines and were they properly treating passengers. And but ultimately, Congress did not require very much. In part because the airlines are, are very powerful; they have a lot of allies in Congress. They they employ a lot of people in every district, and so you know there are there is a lot of anger toward airlines. And we're in the election year, and I do think if if Congress gives the airlines a lot of money, it could be a political issue. If people if if the if their opponents say, you know, did your did your tickets prices go down? Did they give they cut you a break when you had to change your uh, your, t- your ticket. Uh, but I think it depends. There's not a lot of time left. That's the one issue here is, right, they want to get this bill done soon. And with a short with a short time frame, it's hard to it's hard to negotiate something as as politically challenging as as consumer protections, I think, on mm. this bill. Mm. Uh, Scott, I really appreciate the call and the comments and and the perspective there uh, that was uh, very um, that was a very important dimension to inject into the conversation. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about another aspect of the proposed stimulus package, the plan to send out checks to every American. Derek Thompson from The Atlantic will join me next. David Shepardson, as always, great to have you here with us, and we hope you are taking care of you and yours during this pandemic. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. These are chaotic times, to say the least. There are a lot of people working from home, kids are out of school, and there are a lot of people who have no idea how far away they are from their next paycheck. But last week, President Trump and his administration made a surprising announcement, and that was that there was a possibility of them sending out two separate $1,200 checks over the next nine weeks directly to Americans to try to prevent a complete economic meltdown. A version of this stimulus package failed in the Senate last night after Democrats refused to support it. They were objecting to some of the ancillary terms that Republicans have put in the bill. Joining us now is someone who has thought a lot about this proposed policy, staff writer for The Atlantic, Derek Thompson. Derek, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Good to join you. Thank you. Yeah. So for those of us who might not be familiar, briefly get us up to speed on the proposal to give companies and Americans money during this pandemic and where we stand this morning. So what we stand this morning is that we don't have a law on the books now. We have proposals to create a law, and that proposal basically breaks into two parts. On the one hand, there's an effort to provide relief for individuals, uh, mostly through the distribution of, as you said, checks averaging around $1,000 to $1,200. Some versions of this proposal have have included a cutoff, the people over $100,000, uh, would not receive checks so that they it would be concentrated on the middle class. Um, but they're still haggling over the exact terms of how to distribute essentially what is going to amount to thousands of dollars in relief for middle class families, for the vast majority of families over the next few months. The other part of this relief package is help for small and medium sized businesses. And what they're essentially trying to do is to find ways to leverage several hundred billion dollars uh, to give credit, to give um, some form of business stabilization to restaurants and theaters and hair salons and so forth, all of those uh, shuttered businesses on uh, the street corner around you and the people listening to this call, they need help as well. So the way that I think about this plan is that in uh, ways I think are smart but sometimes don't go quite far enough, um, it is essentially trying to freeze the economy. And that's what we should be doing right now. We should be trying to freeze the economy uh, because in many ways that has been the outcome of uh, this quarantine. But essentially, if you're going to say no one walk around, no one shop on streets, stay put where you are, well, that's going to necessarily put a lot of businesses and individuals out of work. And either those businesses or individuals are going to fail in various ways. The families will starve. The businesses uh, will uh, go bankrupt immediately. You know, to make sure that this is as painless as possible, you want to essentially freeze businesses and freeze individuals. Um, Stay put where you are. We'll get you money. We'll pay you to not work. We'll pay you to stay home. You'll get the check no matter what. And then in a couple of months, when we think that this pandemic has crested and started to fall on the other side of it, um, on the other side of of the curve, I should say, then we'll slowly start to unfreeze the economy. People will slowly go back to work and giving out checks for thousands of dollars every few weeks won't be as necessary. So one of the things that's lurking in the back of this conversation is the idea of this as a permanent policy. Andrew Yang, one of the hopefuls in the Democratic presidential primary, made a lot of the idea of universal basic income. He said, look, why don't we send checks to people every month as a way of sustaining them in an economy where a lot of people's work has become obsolete and where a lot of people, quite frankly, uh, will not find opportunity. I, I, I feel like part of the debate here is about that notion, even though we are just for now talking about an emergency measure. I think for a lot of people, this is the foot in the door, or the maybe camel's nose under the tent or whatever uh, analogy you want to uh, draw to this discussion about whether people should just be given a, a basic level of income to survive. Is, am I right in, in, in reading that into the debate here? Yeah, I, I do think that there are a lot of individuals who see these checks as being uh, a early test run for a universal basic income. 
And maybe they are. Um, but I do think it's important to make very, very clear for you and for listeners that uh, the measures that are necessary to combat an economic freeze, which is what we're dealing with right now, are very different than the kind of measures that are ideal for helping an economy where the vast majority of people who want to work are working, right? So the unemployment rate in January and in February was about 3.5%. That was the lowest unemployment rate since the 1950s, so in 70 years. Um, that low unemployment rate, at least at the time, suggested very strongly that uh, the economy was doing a pretty good job of finding individuals' work. Now, might not have been doing a good job of paying them a living wage. It might not have been doing a very good job of providing them with the sort of benefits that I think are really necessary for people, whether those are medical benefits or paid leave or parental, paid uh, uh, sick leave or, or parental leave. Um, the U.S., I think, needs a stronger safety net. And in some ways, Yang is, Yang's proposal essentially does go toward providing a safety net because if you get $10,000, $12,000 a year, you can spend that on necessities like food and health care. That said, I think it's important to distinguish between the sort of measures that are necessary to help Americans during a pandemic quarantine and the sort of measures that are necessary to help Americans when the economy is basically fully up and running. So what I'm trying to say is that I think uh, a UBI, universal basic income, could be an important part of our economy in 2022, 2023. But what's most important right now is that we deal with the economy as it is. And the economy as it is, is not a normal economy. In fact, it's arguably the most abnormal economy that we've seen in 100 years. We have a total economic freeze. And in a total economic freeze, when millions of people, potentially tens of million, millions of people, cannot work because they are employed by restaurants and hair salons that are outlawed um, by uh, federal or, or, or state rule, um, you have to pay these people to do nothing. We have to pay them now to do nothing because we need them to do nothing. We need them to stay home, stay off the streets, and reduce the viral spread. And so I think it's really critical that we say let's do everything possible to pay people to stay put right now. And then when the economy is normal again, hopefully in six months, maybe it'll take 12 months or something like that, then let's talk about the kind of policies that are right for optimizing an economy that is altogether healthy. Mm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Derek Thompson. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers and the host of a podcast called Crazy Genius. Uh, he's also been uh, paying attention to this UBI plan that the Trump administration has been mulling, this idea of sending checks directly to Americans to help subsidize them at a time when a lot of them are being told to stay home and not work, and others have been laid off and told that they may not work. Uh, this kind of economic paralysis is going to have of course, tremendous effects on our economy. These checks to Americans are one of the ideas to try to help mitigate that. I want to know what you think about the idea of sending checks directly to Americans at this time. Is that a way to alleviate the damage that uh, we are expecting the coronavirus pandemic to do to our economy? Uh, if you don't think that's a good idea, give me an idea 
of what you would do. If you have an alternative solution to all of the money that people are going to be missing over the next weeks and months. Uh, also, give us a call and tell us how this money might help you. Is it enough, really, to make a difference in your life if you've lost work? We especially want to hear from folks out there who have been told that they may not work or have been laid off. Uh, would $1,000 or $1,200 really make a difference in your life right now, and what would you do with it? Uh, or do you think maybe the government should be considering sending more money to Americans than just that 1000 or $1,200? As always... The number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. And again, I really want to hear from people who are starting to feel the economic pinch of all of this. Would this $1,000 or $1,200 really make a difference for you would it stop you from experiencing some of the economic calamity that uh, people are anticipating? Let's start with David in Royal Oak. David, welcome to the program. Yes. Uh, hello. Hi. Uh, I live in a senior citizen uh, tower. I'm on Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and uh, disability. Mm -hmm. I wonder if these checks will even be issued to people like myself. Hmm. Great question, David. Uh, Derek Thompson, there are a lot of people who get checks from the federal government regularly because they are elderly or they are sick or disabled in some way. What happens to them in this crisis? I would assume that their normal Medicaid or disability SSI checks would continue, but would they also get these income checks that the government is distributing? Yeah, the short answer is yes. You absolutely would still get checks from the government under this relief, this coronavirus relief package. If you're on Social Security, you will continue to receive your Social Security checks, and you will also get separate checks from the government based on this policy. Um, and uh, that actually goes to, sh that, that points to, I think, a really critical feature of uh, this of this moment that we're in, which is that at a time when lots of employers are going out of business and lots of employers that are barely hanging on by a nail are still furloughing many, many people, mm -hmm. firing many people, say a company like Marriott, which has shown a lot of leadership, but also is devastated by an utter shutdown in the travel economy and therefore is furloughing, I just read, a lot of um, its employees. The federal government doesn't have to do that. The federal government is not trying to run a profit. It's not traded uh, on, on the stock market. Uh, the federal government can run a deficit and should run a deficit, a large deficit, when the economy is in crisis as it is today. So it can continue to pay Social Security, and it can continue to pay Medicare and Medicaid, and it can bail out small businesses and send uh, $1,000, $1,200 checks to individuals. So. I think that this is why so many people are looking to the federal government to provide a really, really large stimulus or relief package in the next few days or next week. When I say large, I don't mean uh, in the billions, in the hundreds of billions. I mean it needs to be in the trillions. The government can afford to do it, and indeed the government must do it, because otherwise the private sector is going to utterly shut down and it's going to create great depression-style conditions. Hmm. 
We've seen this play before. We know what happens to an economy going through a complete private sector shutdown when the government doesn't step up enough to help. Um, this, in 1930, 1931, before um, uh, FDR's election in 1932, this is what you saw. You saw a, 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 the, the beginnings of the Great Depression, and it took tremendous fiscal and monetary efforts to help the U.S. get out of it. Um, that's what we need to get out of this crisis as well. Hmm. Uh, David on Twitter says he's currently working from home, doesn't live, live beyond his means, so he's okay for now. He said if he and his family received a check for $1,200, they'd most likely pay off school loan debt, prepay bills, or make an extra mortgage payment to get ahead of next month's bills. Uh, I, I think that's the kind of thing that that lawmakers imagine people would do with this money is, again, keep the economy going, as you're talking about, not have it freeze completely the way uh, that, that it seems like it is. I, I mean, I would imagine that most lawmakers might also add some kinds of consumer uh, activity uh, to that list for for David saying that uh, that's that's the part of the economy that uh, that is really frozen up right now in, in particular. Yeah, so actually this kind of points to a debate that is also being had uh, in Washington. Although um, you know I don't want to take us too far from the central issue of these checks, but if you are going to spend, let's say one trillion dollars on giving money directly to families, right? This is, we're not talking about businesses here. We're not talking about bailouts. We're not talking about loans. We're talking about cash in the hands of families. There's a question. What's the best and fastest way to put cash in the hands of families who need it the most? Some people are clearly saying it's to write checks. If you write checks to taxpayers, you guarantee that everyone who needs that cash, or just about everyone who needs that cash, will get that cash. But you also have what I suppose you could call false positives. You could be giving $1,200 to someone who doesn't really need it. And mm -hmm. so they're going to, you know, get three months ahead on mortgage payments, or they're going to save that money, which is, you know, not a crisis, but not the ideal use of that $1,200 potentially. The better way to spend that money, some people are saying, is to uh, ramp up our unemployment insurance system, uh, the UI, unemployment insurance. That is, we want to make sure that everyone who files for jobless claims gets not only uh, a couple hundred dollars in cash in this downturn, but maybe more than that. Maybe we raise uh, the, the maximum uh, of, of unemployment insurance. Maybe we change the sort of the benefit formula to make sure that people who lose their jobs get a lot of money from unemployment insurance rather than just a little. And maybe you extend the terms of unemployment insurance so that people can collect that check for as long as they need to if this, uh, if this downturn lasts six, 12, 18 months. Um, and so I do think that I, I do want to foreground the possibility that even though checks are interesting and checks are universal and there's a lot of benefits to them, it is possible, and I, I think I, I could make the case, that if you're going to spend a trillion dollars on cash for families, the best way to do that is to dramatically ramp up unemployment insurance mm. uh, rather than uh, give checks to every single uh, household, uh, regardless of uh, their financial security. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Brian in Royal Oak. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Oh, well, surviving. Mm. Yeah, we, my my family has a, a supermarket in Southwest Detroit, and we are just busy as can be. And I think that a check written to me would be pretty misguided hmm. because it wouldn't make my spending wouldn't have more work than I can deal with. I think there's better w ways to to distribute the money as the 
what Guess was just saying. I think that we have to be careful that we don't send money to people who just don't need it. So, so Brian, would you rather see some sort of means testing, I guess, to, to determine who needs it? I mean, uh, clearly some of the people who are probably shopping at your, at your market might, might need this. I get that, that, that you're doing okay. Uh, I, I wonder if you're objecting to the whole idea or just no, the way no, it's no, being no. done. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. I think that they just have to be careful that, you know, there are, there are and there will be people that will need it. I'm not one of them. And right now we have around 90 employees and we're paying, we're paying them extra for their hard work mm. that they're coming in and they're, they're, you know, we're paying some, uh, on some days we've been paying double time just to keep them going because the volume has just been so ridiculous inside the store. And, you know, yeah. we want our customers to have food right. in a month <laughs> right. when there is no work. Right. We want them to have it. If, if, they gave that money to me, I would turn around and donate it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that everybody would right. that didn't need it. Brian, I I really appreciate the call and and the look inside uh, your world there. Uh, Derek Thompson, talk about this idea of, of maybe means testing. There's also a story in The Hill that says to be eligible to receive a check, a person has to have had at least $2,500 in income, meaning that the lowest income people wouldn't qualify. I also wonder about people who are maybe homeless uh, or, mm-hmm. or off the grid, really, economically. Uh, do they get this money as well? Right. The, because this money is probably going to be administered through the IRS, the IRS can only send money to individuals who uh, it knows to have been taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't been paying tax, if you're homeless or for whatever other reason, then it's possible that those people might not get that check. That's right. Um, you know, you're going to have a problem with people who, for example, are, are homeless and totally off the grid no matter what. If they, if they don't have an address, it's hard to get them a check. And if they don't file for jobless benefit, it's hard to get them unemployment insurance. And this is, again, a reason to make sure that you have a uh, sort of multi-pronged safety net, that not only do you have a means of distributing cash to people who show up for the cash, um, either by filing taxes or, or filing for initial claims um, or for, for jobless benefits, um, but also you you uh, you have um, homeless shelters um, that can take care of people um, like that. And so the, the question the, the the person asking the question, I think put it very well that it is inevitable that if you write a check that is uh, basically the same to every single uh, taxpaying unit, uh, you know household and individual, uh, you're going to have some false positives. You're going to give some of this money to people who really don't necessarily need it. Um, Again, I don't think that is necessarily a critical problem. It's more important to make sure that people get this money as fast as possible. But it also raises the question, is there a better way to do this? And I do think that it is possible that the fastest and most efficient way to get lots of money into the hands of people who need it the most is to do two things. One, ramp up unemployment insurance across the country, uh, increase the formulas, increase the maximum benefit, increase the duration, make sure that when people file for a jobless benefit, they get a lot of money uh, from the state um, and that the state is being uh, backed by the federal government. And also to have the president and have other people who have a large megaphone uh, say uh, loudly and repeatedly, if you are unemployed, if you are laid off, um, if you are furloughed, we have this system of jobless benefits that can pay you immediately. Please go to this website. Please call this number so that we can begin 
to give you help immediately so that you can feed your family and make that rent payment or make that mortgage payment um, and pay for necessities, keep the electricity and the water on, et cetera. So I, I think that it is you know, as, as interesting and, and as potentially useful as these checks are going to be. Um, I do fall ever so slightly on the side of preferring to do a majorly ramped up unemployment insurance mm. Uh, uh, answer this problem rather uh, than set, send checks to every single taxpaying unit for precisely the reason that this caller said. You're going to end up you know, giving millions, billions probably of dollars uh, to people who don't necessarily need it right now. Not the worst case scenario, given how, how, tra- how, how terrible this economic crisis is, um, but there is potentially a better solution. Yeah. Okay. Derek Thompson, staff writer at The Atlantic. Great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. It's good to be here. It's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.